Nine out of ten hiring managers are having difficulty hiring today. Robert Half is here to help. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Coming up on Money Beat, President Trump starts the clock on scaling back Dodd-Frank, the financial regulation law. What does that mean? What are the possible ramifications? Our banking team is here to break it down. This is Money Beat from the Wall Street Journal. Now from our studios in New York, here are Paul Vigna and Stephen Grosser. Welcome to the Money Beat Show, coming to you on a Friday afternoon in New York City. Paul and Stephen here in the studio. And on Friday, President Donald Trump continued his quest to uh, make America work for the, the working man, to change things down in Washington, to make conditions better for the, the struggling middle classes in the Rust Belt cities. And today he uh, signed an executive order to begin the scaling back of Dodd-Frank, the post-financial crisis bank regulatory bill to discuss... Well, it's a law. It was a bill at one point. Now it's a law. Uh, To discuss this, we have a full packed house. Aaron Lucchetti, Aaron Beck, Sarah Krause. How are you all? How's everyone doing? Very good. Good to be here. Very well, thanks. And uh, uh, Aaron... Aaron B., uh, you are you're you're waiting hard for the actual text of this thing to come out yet, aren't yes. you? Yes, as of this recording, the full text has not been released of the executive orders that were signed midday Friday. But due to the uh, incredible scoop getting prowess of our uh, colleagues in Washington D.C., we have a pretty good idea of what's in the executive order. But Aaron just wants to spend his whole weekend going through it, so we'd like the full text. So <laughs> right? That we yes. Can, you know, get yeah. a jump on that. Uh, okay, so what's our good idea? What is in this? Grosser, yeah, yeah. Like, yes, so like, let's let's take a step back first here, and can you sort of explain what this does? What an executive order like this so does? This, this executive order, uh, there, uh, there are two parts. One part lays out the principles through which they are going to go about, you know, quote unquote, dismantling or scaling back Dodd Frank, the regulatory bill, and it really just lays down principles. So it says that they want to change enforcement of the Volcker Rule, which is the rule that keeps banks from trading on their own book. It says that they're going to be looking at capital requirements to see if they're too onerous and you know preventing lending. Um, and uh, But it's really just principles. The specifics are all going to have to be sort of spelled out by officials who are still to be appointed in the Trump administration. And it doesn't change the text of the law. It changes how the law is enforced, with the, which the administration has a lot of flexibility to do. And there's a second executive order that is going to delay implementation of the so-called fiduciary rule, which is a rule that was put in place in the waning days of the Obama administration, hasn't actually taken effect yet, that um, regulates retirement savings, makes it so that people who advise you on retirement savings need to act in your best interest as fiduciaries rather than simply giving, quote-unquote, suitable advice, which was the previous standard. And, and that had r- not come into effect yet, right? The actual right. rule was to be implemented in April, and now it will likely be delayed. And so what does this executive order mean to that rule since it hasn't been implemented yet? Well, I think delay is being read widely as delayed indefinitely, i.e. killed. I mean, it, people are expecting this version of the fiduciary rule that went through many versions and lots of debate over the Obama years. and. Over Many years. In many years of, of the White House, that that version is pretty much going to be uh, put away and, and, and taken out back behind the woodshed. I, I, that's very good day for brokers and for financial advisory firms. Whether it's a good day for customers, you know, that's debatable. Look, highly debatable. So, you know, intuitively, one would think <coughs> naturally you would want your advisor to be acting in your self-interest. But the 
counter argument is that a lot of people who didn't have a lot of money uh, essentially got free retirement advice, and their advice, their investors, their advisors got paid through commission sales from you know variable annuity providers, asset management companies, and things like that. Right, and and there is a political point to be made that look. Whether you are for the fiduciary standard for retirement accounts or not, it wasn't central to the financial crisis. So we should focus on two things, making banks sound and safe so they don't blow up again like they did in 2008, and doing it in a way that doesn't just totally uh, take away economic growth. So the president wants better economic growth. He wants to take away things that don't really uh, add to safety and soundness, uh, but hurt growth or hurt financial firms. And this is one area that he's. Well, I mean, the flip side at. is how does changing the fiduciary rule mean there'll be more bank lending and jobs? You know, I mean, it doesn't. But anyway. Well, that that's sort of one of the the overall questions about this. And I mean. Look, there were a lot of arguments when Dodd-Frank was being put through Congress, whether it was good, what was bad, you know, but it is the law. But let's look at the stated reason for doing this action, which is, you know, ostensibly to create more lending and a better economy. Um, I mean, Grosser, you know, every quarter you're on here talking about the banks and, and their, their profits. They don't they didn't seem to me to be suffering all that much. I mean, is there really is there really a problem where the banks can't lend money because of these regulations that is stifling the economic economic well, growth? I mean, first of all, Paul, I, I would simply put in terms of suffering much. Yes, the banks are still making lots of money, but. Uh, they they were limited in growth. I mean, like the world had changed, and regulation had played a big role in that. Um, you know, that is that was one of the big stories of you know we were on here last year, um, you know, in the first quarter talking about how are the banks ever going to grow? They're boring utilities now. Uh, this is, I mean, this isn't a question for me to answer. I mean, I, you know, I think and both the Aaron's have better thoughts on this, but yeah. this is a question of what do you want the financial system to provide? Do you do we want boring utility banks, well, if, or do we want more dynamic banks? That, like, like, Aaron, like Aaron, Aaron B is raising his if finger. I could, if I could jump in, uh, yeah. So yeah. I was just crunching some numbers, and annual uh, the average loan growth over the last three years, and this is total loans and leases by U.S. banks, was just shy of 7%, which is, you know, not too shabby. Mm -hmm. And I actually compared that to... In a yeah, sluggish economy. Yes, and, you know, 2% GDP growth. And uh, the the average loan growth between 2000 and 2007, so pre-crisis era, was around 8%. And that was probably a little too fast, because let's be frank, there was some lending that shouldn't have happened. So... A little bit. Uh, I, I think the question is not so much total loan growth, where there is, you know, a, a very credible complaint that people have, is that small businesses are getting overly you know, are having a hard time accessing capital, and that small and medium banks um, are overly burdened by regulation. And so, uh, but whether or not these executive orders will address that, I don't know. Uh, I, well, we haven't seen the text. And on that front, it's really just a starting point. The executive yes. orders are going to lead to lots of discussions between uh, Congress and, and the financial committees and the House and Senate and the Trump administration, and we'll probably see some serious legislation this year. Right. I was going to say, and that strikes me as one of the differences in terms of the way the administration went about um, these executive orders is it seems to be um, a little bit of a more um, a, a potentially slower process than what you've seen in some of the other actions, for example, on immigration, where they're saying, OK, agencies, this is what we'd like to broadly achieve. Go out, come back to us with ideas, and then we'll talk about next steps. Yeah, it seems like the immigration equivalent to the Wall Street thing would have been just scrapping Volcker and saying, you guys can trade next week. Go yeah, at it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Which, which they didn't do. Yeah, they right. did not do. That. Yeah. Uh, 
Well, I was going to say, it's one of the questions I, I, I wanted to get an answer to was Gary Cohn in our story is quoted as saying this, you know, regulation, Dodd-Frank, has cost banks hundreds of billions of dollars a year. That seems like an, you know, an unrealistic, a significant hyperbole. Is that? Well, I don't know. Well, I mean, can we can we can we ask that question, but answer it after the break? Let's do that. Hold your thoughts. Hold your thoughts. Hold your ears, folks. Listen to this message, and we'll come back with a, uh, an answer to that question. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com. Love tech? Dig gadgets? Then make tech news briefing from the Wall Street Journal a part of your day. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. This is Money Beat from the Wall Street Journal. Now from our studios in New York, here are Paul Vigna and Stephen Grosser. Welcome back to the Money Beat Show. Aaron Lucchetti, Aaron Back, Sarah Krause joining Steve and I here in the studio today talking about Dodd-Frank and President Trump's executive order to start scaling back the law. And uh, before we go into that, I just want to remind you folks that if you want more podcasts from the Wall Street Journal, check us out at wsj.com slash podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at WSJ Podcasts. And you can subscribe. You can subscribe for free. Cost you nothing to subscribe to a WSJ podcast. You get all this stuff coming directly. Directly to you. You don't even have to go looking for it. Uh, we're on iHeartRadio, Amazon Echo, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, your Google Play Music app. And Steve Grosser, you had asked a question, which is interesting. Gary Cohen, former number two at Goldman Sachs until extremely recently, now with the administration, said that Dodd-Frank had cost the bank hundreds of billions of dollars. A uh, year. A year. Right. A year. Uh, folks, let, let's talk about that. I mean, what is Do- has Dodd-Frank really cost the banks that kind of money? It might well, be slight hyperbole, but it's cost them a lot of money. So you have to take, first of all, the, all the money that is spent uh, complying with regulations, mm-hmm. hiring new compliance officers, going through, you know, adopting new systems, et cetera, et cetera. That's certainly in the billions. And then there's the uh, lost business opportunities because of Dodd-Frank. So all the trading that Goldman Sachs could have done that it now can't. So, I mean, it's certainly, you know, uh, a substantial amount of money. Uh, there's no doubt about that. I guess the question, though, is, is that a bad thing? Well, yeah. Because, I mean, we saw what happened before these regulations went in. I mean, that's the thing that kind of interests me about this is, like, we have a historical precedent for knowing what is going to happen on Wall Street when these guys are underregulated. But we're not going back to the pre-crisis status quo here. You sure? I I mean, I'm pretty sure. So banks hold vastly more capital than they did then. But Because there's a law that tells them they have to. Well, there's also international agreements setting capital minimum standards, by the way. And that's one reason why the administration doesn't have all as much flexibility as, you know, they might say to actually just, you know, have banks lend again. And one of the things that Cohen said that was interesting was that the capital standards that you just referred to are the important piece of um, legislation or regulation for the banks and all this other stuff that went on top of it, like the Volcker rule on trading, like the Durbin Amendment on swipe fees, that sort of thing was overkill. And you're sort of, if you just relied on the capital Standards, which make banks hold money aside and really kind of give them skin in the game and make them be more cautious, that that's the important thing to keep. We'll see if that holds yeah, up. But that, that's not consistent with the rhetoric of banks aren't allowed to lend, though. I mean, it's one or the other. Either, either, either banks need to hold more capital or they need to loan more. It's not. Well, the other thing I, I, I wonder, too, is, I mean, are 
are banks really the problem when you're talking about economic growth here? I mean, money has basically been free at the Fed for years. The banks have been getting it for very low. Their their cost is, is virtually nothing to get money. Well, our colleague Dave uh, Riley I mean, has written it, a lot about this and, and being a demand problem, uh, not I, really a, a Thank bank you for finishing problem. my statement. Right, exactly. I mean, is it a demand problem? So in the first few years after the financial crisis, it was definitely a demand problem. There was not that much demand for loans. Well, there was none then, yeah. Right. And so what we've seen is a kind of you – know, the last few years, there's been a pickup in bank lending. But I mean, look, are there structural issues, especially around, say, small business lending? Yeah, I mean – due to regulations? Certainly there are. I mean, it's perfectly reasonable to take a step back and say, all right, let's evaluate, you know, what has been put in place, what have been the unintended consequences, how could we do it better? Uh, I think my concern is that it's going to be difficult to affect, you know, really comprehensive change without Congress. So, for example, one proposal that a lot of people are in favor of uh, is raising the threshold for stress testing at the Federal Reserve from $50 billion in assets to $250 billion in assets. And that would help a lot of medium-sized banks get right. a break. That would require legislation because that's in the law. So, you know, they can tinker with the enforcement, which is what they're announcing that they're going to do. But they need to get a bill through Congress for big change. And that's likely going to happen because it, it, it is it is supported on both sides. Uh, it's got wide support in Congress, and we'll see. I mean, that, that is one thing that you could see getting done. Yeah, one thing that I think has been interesting to watch today is market reaction. I mean, broadly positive across the board um, You know, for asset managers. They had already gained ground on the prospect of the regulation being pared back. Um, you know, it was just interesting to see that they had even more room to run, and you've specifically seen it in the names that maybe had higher fee structures and, and are most likely to benefit from the prospect of future regulation sort of drifting away. And I don't like, know what you guys like saw in the Franklin banking Franklin Resources. Yeah, Waddell and, and Reed. Yeah. Um, you know, mm-hmm. and a lot of the active managers, frankly, where this was going to cause acute pressure. And we're now, of course, talking about the fiduciary rule, not the, the Dodd-Frank stuff. But uh, maybe you guys could talk a little bit about what you saw in the banking sector today. Biggest winners today were Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley last time I checked because, yeah. uh, you know, I mean, it's all about uh, prop trading maybe. Right. Um, and Citigroup was up a bit as, uh, as well, I think, over 3% because yeah. – Citigroup has, you know, had a lot of trouble with regulation. They also hold very high levels of capital. Um, so if they're allowed to return more of that capital, it would be very positive for them. Morgan Stanley is no stranger to that spot being either up the most or down the most in the <laughs> big bank stocks. But today they have sort of two good things going on. One is the fiduciary uh, rule situation because they have a huge brokerage force. They could benefit from that. And then also, obviously, the trading that Aaron just mentioned. Oh, so they're double beneficiaries. Yeah. One yeah. other thing I wanted to talk about while we're here is the potential for non-bank SIFI designations to go away. That was one other thing that the administration has talked about. We should, we should, should back quickly, up and, and tell people what that means. Just going to say that, right? Right. Do you want to? Well, it's, it's, we're basically talking about the the idea that a financial institution is systemically important or too big to fail. Systemically and, important financial institution is a SIFI. Yes, um, with the idea being that should that firm collapse, it would have far-reaching implications for the U.S. financial markets. So banks have been labeled as such. Some insurers have been labeled as such. Asset managers had so far avoided such labels. Um, now it looks even less likely that that will come around for them. And so I would say that that was a further sort of boon to the companies that I cover, certainly BlackRock, but also Fidelity and Vanguard, who faced potentially further regulation, um, you know, should they have been labeled as such. Mm. Yeah. And the insurers are sort of right in between. They, they've been sort of, I mean, the asset managers have kind of 
come out on one side of that, and the banks are definitely in the SIFI um, side of it. The insurers have been more in the middle. Uh, of course, AIG famously helped uh, create the financial crisis or spread it, whatever uh, version of, of events you, you believe. Um, but the insurers now have gone back and forth fighting whether they should be SIFIs or not. Some of it's gone to court. It's been very contentious. And now we've taken a big step towards saying the insurers don't need to be regulated like the big banks because they're different. They're not as systemically risky. Though that said, also, they look very different than they did several years ago. I mean, a number of insurers have moved to sell off parts of their business or sort of simplify what they do in part in response to that. But, you know, sort of that industry has Well, changed. also partially because they expected the fiduciary rule to come into effect. I mean, I think that's one very interesting thing is a lot of businesses, whether you talk about banks, insurers, have changed their business models so much um, in anticipation, in reaction to Obama administration rules, in anticipation of the fiduciary rule. And we're talking about a lot of insurance companies would just yeah. sell off or their retail units and fire all their proprietary traders. So, I mean, at what point do businesses get tired of this whiplash? You and that's know, tricky, especially with the fiduciary rule. I mean, it's February. The deadline was April. Yeah, so, so if everybody, you're do everybody was ready it. to go. You know, right. Right. now it's right. not happening. One of, the, one of the questions getting just to the fiduciary rule is, you know, this is supposed to be a boon for, you know, the passive sort of, you know, index ETFs. investors. What, is, is this what is this? How does this impact it? I mean, I've been reading a lot that you know ETFs are here and they're going right. to still. I mean, keep a lot running. of what asset management executives have said is like, you know, this is a trend that was underway regardless of what was happening with the fiduciary rule. Investors are broadly pulling money out of actively managed funds, particularly stock funds, and pouring more into passive funds. Is the elimination of fiduciary rule going to change that? No. Could it slow it? Maybe. I mean, um, you know. Gary Cohn had a, a very interesting analogy for this fiduciary uh, standard debate where he said, basically, this is an argument uh, along the lines of the government saying you should only eat healthy food. That uh, it, when you go to a restaurant, you see a bunch of things on the menu and you get to choose. Do I want the healthy item? Do I want the burger and fries? What do I want? He's basically saying let the investor have a choice between anything on the menu and let Wall Street provide anything on the menu. Of course – when you go into a restaurant, you kind of know what's healthy and what's not. When you're in the that investing world, when you're in the investing world, you don't. I mean, I think that was inartfully phrased by him and reveals a bit, perhaps, of a tin year. Maybe he I was mean, hungry when he was. <laughs> but I mean, I, there there is an argument that a lot of people would not get financial advice at all if they didn't get it for free, and that you know, it, it's it, it, look, it is debatable whether or not it is better to pay for fiduciary standard advice. Or if it is better to get, you know, advice for free that is, like, slightly less than the gold standard. I, I, it is debatable. I think he didn't phrase that very well. You know, well. one question I have is, is there an opportunity here to go back to a place where commercial banks were regulated and boring like utilities and the investment firms and Wall Streeters are allowed to go out and, and kind of play cowboy if they want, but they will have to suffer the consequences of their bets, which was the problem in 2008. They got to play cowboy, and then they didn't have to suffer the consequence. They all got bailed out. I mean, is there a chance here where this does not become – and again, you know, a lot of people still don't trust Wall Street. Is there a chance where this becomes a place where you, know, you can go into the restaurant and eat whatever you want, but you know, if you eat the blowfish that's poisonous, you're going to deal with that on your own? Uh, I mean, so – uh, the incoming Treasury Secretary. Isn't it the blowfish, right? Is it made I think incorrectly? I, I, I think that's right. Kill yes, you or something. Killing it on food metaphors. So <laughs> I know. I'm trying. I'm trying. <laughs> this is your best unhealthy food. Uh, so <laughs> first, the, head, yeah. the, uh, so Secretary Treasury 
nominee Stephen Nuchin has said that he could, in theory, be in favor of a quote unquote 21st century Glass Steagall. Right. Now, frustratingly, he has not explained what he means by that at all. But um, it could perhaps hint in the direction of what you're, you're hinting. Glass-Steagall, of course, was the uh, Depression-era law that separated commercial investment banking, which is what you're referring to. Yeah. But he hasn't yeah. explained. You knew and, where I was going. And so uh, you, you, to say something like that without explaining what you mean is, is a bit odd. But I, I, it does underscore that this executive order today from Trump was really just a starting point. Um, and uh, there's 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 a lot of ground to cover before we can figure out you know what the banking system is right. going to look like in an end state. And the the other thing too is I think it's important with Dodd Frank. I know we've hit on this. Aaron's hit on this. Aaron B has hit on this a few times. I mean, it, it's easy to sort of simplify this and say this is just about Wall Street. But Dodd Frank went much farther than Wall Street. It was you know your small banks on your on the main street mm-hmm. in a lot of this country, and you know they were facing a significant you know regulatory burden and there's been uh, you know a lot of them have you know been you know the consolidation gone out of business and stuff like that in the years yeah you know. yeah yeah the, all right that is that's been a big a big uh, point that that smaller banks have been talking about for years and we we talked to a couple of big bank executives this week and they're pretty much on board with relaxing standards for the small banks uh, dad frank came very quickly you don't always have time to um sort of measure all the different ramifications. And so when they put it out, the small banks were kind of thrown in with the bigger right. banks in a lot of regards. Uh, we, we have to end it here. Sorry to say, folks, we could probably do this for another hour, but uh, Grosser and I have another, we have another podcast to tape. Grosser, you don't get to go anywhere. You have to stay right here, my friend. I always have to hang out with you. I know, it's really, <laughs> it, that's your burden. Uh, Aaron Lucchetti, Aaron Back, Sarah Krause, thank you very much. Thank you. Good conversation. Maybe we'll con- maybe we'll continue it next week. I mean, we're gonna have plenty of time to talk it's about this. It's gonna be plenty one. more. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Everyone, thank you for listening. We'll catch up with you soon. For more podcasts, check us out at wsj.com/slash/podcasts. Become a subscriber on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and now look for us on the Google Play Music app on Android devices.